This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is a podcast from The Times, sports newspaper of the year. Hello and welcome to the game. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I'm here with the latest from an action-packed weekend of football. Here to discuss the big talking points preceded, of course, with a handshake are Alison Rudd, Tony Barrett, and broadcasting from beautiful downtown Mortlake, it's Matt Dickinson. Later on, I'll be uh, asking my panel if they think the Hillsborough verdict can have an impact on the future of the game as well as its past. But let's start at the Britannia. Anybody want to say it's always a difficult place to go? No, I didn't think so. All right, so let's get straight into it. Um, Stoke and City looks to me from from the outside and from, from match of the day, uh, if you're Manchester City, you view this as two points dropped given the Crouch basketball incident, the Balotelli elbow to the face, Ryan Shawcross off the line. Alison? Yeah, well, it was interesting that Mancini said, <laughs> in, in quite a petulant way why do we bother turning up why don't we just agree to get a point each and not, not bother going because obviously the effort of getting there and putting his players through three debutants and showing them what it's like to play at the Britannia they probably do without it um, but it's interesting it's a mindset isn't it that I think increasingly a lot of the better clubs so-called better clubs have is that they go to the Britannia and I think they think they're probably only going to get a point there's something about that place but it's weird, though, because statistically, actually, I, I, I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but Stoke's home record isn't exceptional. In fact, I think there was one stage last season where they had a better record away from home than they did at home. I'm wondering if this, this like Britannia thing isn't some kind, of, some kind of myth. Is it, Tony? I don't think, well, in terms of statistics, it is a myth because I think there's plenty of teams when the Manchester United tend to do well there, uh, but... I think there is a psychological element to this. You, you go to Stoke, you know the kind of football you're going to come up against. You know it's not going to be an easy game. You know you're going to have to. You're not going to play well. I think that's the big issue. You know you're not going to be allowed to play the kind of football you'd like to. So all this kind of builds up into a myth. Yeah, it is. It is to an extent a myth because teams who go there and win. But I, I also think Stoke don't always get the credit they deserve. It's 
there are times when Stoke do stop the opposition from playing, but they also play some decent stuff themselves. I don't think there is one dimensional as people have you believe. And it is one of those grounds that I think there are four or five in the Premier League that anything more than a point there is a good result. And I mean that's obviously the teams outside the top four. If you get if you get a point at Stoke, you get a point at Goodison, you get a point at Anfield. I think you're doing well. I think these are kind of teams that aren't necessarily in the elite, but they're going to give it a tough game at, at the home ground. Andy Gray's to blame, isn't he, for coming out with that? Was it the old line about um, would Messi do it at a cold uh, on a cold night? It seems to have sort of stuck in the. Uh, but I think maybe the mistake. I mean, in some ways, Tony said it there about you know teams worry that they're going to be able to play their game, and, and I mean it's almost as if they're they're altering their style purely, purely. To, to, to sort of counter something that Stoke may or may or may not throw at them, um, I think maybe maybe there's a you know, the mistake is made before too many teams even even turn up there by by, by altering their philosophies. Okay, but all that said, Asmir Begovic made some ridiculously good saves. There was the the, the unpunished Palotelli elbow to the face. I know it's all these Mario, but it doesn't mean he can get elbowed in the face. And but most of all, there was this absurd Peter Crouch decision. Now. I don't want to pick on referees, but frankly, when they have absolute stinkers, I, I, I think we have to recognize that these people aren't good. And it's frustrating to think that there's people who invest a lot of time and money, and whether it's, it's the fans or the owners or whatever else, to have the best players and best managers you know, possible in the Premier League. And then you get situations like this. And Allison, you're the designated defender of all things, uh, of all things referees. How, how can you not spot two handballs in one sequence when the guy's 50 feet tall and you're standing three feet away. Well, what's he, what's he looking at? Well, I, didn't, I didn't, honestly didn't think it was that obvious. Until Peter Crouch admitted it, I thought it was doubtful that it was technically handball at all. He's all gangly. His arms and legs, the ball was bounding all no over difference. the place. How, the fact that you're uncoordinated doesn't mean you can handle but the it ball. But visually, visually, that makes it difficult. Did because the ball's bouncing well, everywhere. Right. Shoulders, I'm, chest, knees, isn't it? You said, I mean, you know, if he didn't see it, he didn't see it. I mean, you know, like you can argue, obviously. No, 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 Hang on a second. Hang on a second. No, 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 but their referees are coached to be in the right position. They're coached to be looking, you know, in the right, right. place. But, but you know, ultimately, it was a crowded box, um, load of bodies. The guy is, is snaking through, you know, whether it's with foot, hand or, or whatever. He's snaking through, um, say, a, partic- a particularly crowded box. You know, I... I I, I, there, are, there are easy measures of sometimes of of officiating incompetence, but the ability to 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 necessarily be in the perfect position to see to see that is is not necessarily one of them. Yeah, but Dicko, I, I appreciate what you said there about he's in the right position and everything, right? But he said if he didn't see, he couldn't see it. So let's give him a pass. I, I'm sorry. There's a reason like Wayne Rooney plays up front for England, and and you don't. You can get all the same coaching and be as fit as Wayne Rooney, potentially. Um, but Wayne Rooney's a better footballer than you. And so clearly there are better referees than, uh, than, 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 than Mr. Clattenburg. Um, there were still the occasions when Wayne Rooney would miss a chance or misplace a pass that even Dicko, me, Alice Moore, you could make that. That's the human element of football, which any referee can, can have a perfectly good game. But for one split second, can make a really terrible decision that changes the game, and that's the thing. Obviously, we all focus on. But I, I, I just think it's. I, I looked at two of the penalty decisions of the weekend that were given, and, and both could have went either way. And I just think refereeing is becoming incredibly difficult, and it's and it, decisions like this are going to become more and more apparent. I'm amazed, Gab is picking on that. I don't. I. 
I thought it was a difficult thing to spot. Yeah. Well, exactly. Well, to pick on pick on a referee who sees something and makes a and, and, and makes a colossal error of it, of judgment or interpretation, not not whether he's got X-ray specs or not. Well, I, I I just kind of feel, and this is obviously a debate for another time, but if. Part of the success of the Premier League is in the fact that it's attracted some of the best players from all over the world, some of the best managers from all over the world, regardless of where they're from. I'm wondering if at some point we make the debate, should they just go and say, okay, these are the 10 best or 20 best referees that we can possibly get, regardless of nationality, and we're not going to go and have a quota system and we're going to reserve our spots in, in the Premier League and, and, our sort of, uh, and, and those jobs for the boys who happen to, who happen to, to be English. I wonder if we're going to if we're going to reach that 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 stage at some point, and whether we should. It just seems strange to me that if if you're a plumber from Hungary, you can come to London and you can work as a plumber. Uh, if you're a referee from Hungary, even you might be Victor Kasai, be one of the best in the world. We don't you, want any, we don't want any of your match fixers coming over. Is that you say, right? no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I will keep the Italian match fixers uh, um, out of it, but. Um, you're, pre- you're presupposing there's such a thing as the perfect referee. No, 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 no. I am presupposing that there are better referees than other that, 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 and, and worse referees, and that better referees get fewer decisions wrong than worse referees. I, that's I, I right. Th- that, that's, that's right. But I've, I always come back to. I think always. I mean, Simon Barnes has always written this about referees. It's just, just I mean, a obviously the, the the fact that there's only one or two. Goals um, in 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 football compared to you know other sports with you know basketball rugby etc. With with far more points always puts far more far more attention inevitably on you know decisions around goals. That's one thing. Two, it's an impossible job. The game's got you know so much quicker. The idea that you can see everything is just ridiculous. It's just impossible. And then add the sort of football's um, part you know partisanship, the the, the natural sort of. Um, controversy that we we love to generate ar- around the game that stirs so much interest, and the, the whole thing just gets completely over overblown. I mean, yes, the, should, should, do we wish the standard refereeing was better? Yes, can we probably find better referees in Denmark, Germany? Um, quite quite possibly, but um, I think you are making a mountain out of a small mistake. Let's go back to the game, uh, Tony. Big deal was made of the fact that there were three deputants for um, for Manchester City, Javi Garcia, uh, Sinclair, and uh, Mykon. Um, Javi Garcia obviously uh, scored the equaliser for City. Um, of those three, who do you think is going to have the biggest impact this year? Um, I, I still think Mykon's a, a, a sign and that doesn't make sense in so many ways. Uh, I, I look at him and... I look at what Manchester City were already got in that position. I see Zabaleta, who I think is possibly their best defensive right back, uh, and Mika Richard. So I don't see where where he fits in. But if he shows the kind of form he played, it, he displayed it into two, three years ago, then then maybe it could be him. Um, I haven't seen enough of Javi Garcia. I've I've got to be honest. He's a player I've already seen bits of in in the Champions League. He he looks a good enough player. But who's the third one you mentioned? I just. It's a young gentleman named Scott Sinclair. Scott Sinclair. Um, well, that's another one again that I, I think that one goes down as one for the list, an Englishman for the list. It's, uh, he doesn't seem to be the kind of player that Manchester City would normally go for. So, of the three, you, possibly you don't think Mike on. That, that maybe Sinclair, I'm, the thinking is they don't have that many genuine wingers at, at City. And so, with, with AJ gone, you, know, you, you, you bring another guy who is more of a legit winger. I think he will be a like-for-like replacement for, for AJ. I think he will be another bit part player winger. I think that's <laughs> what, what he'll be. And I think that's 
he's signed for Mancini, a manager who doesn't necessarily utilise his kind of player that often. So if Mike, again, I think if Mike on's got the best chance of the three, but more because he's got a manager who likes working with him than, than the fact that he might be the right player for City at this time. Two more points. We have everybody. Michael Owen is such a huge story that even though we talked about this last week, we need to talk about it again because uh, there's a different cast of characters on the podcast since we're having those nice, efficient whip rounds. Um, Michael Owen made his cameo. Uh, is he good for Stoke or will he just go and mess up what kind of already works with Walters and Crouch? And Allison, I'm looking at you. If he, if he can be fit enough, he's bloody brilliant for Stoke. Well, yeah, Michael Owen is a class player, a star. <laughs> He's amazing, amazing. I just don't know quite how fit he is. All right, uh, Tony, do you want to join in the celebration of Michael Owen and how amazing it, he is? Uh, I think September 2010 was the last time Michael started the game. I think that it tells a story. Uh, I mean, if Michael, if Michael can come off the bench in a few games and score a few goals, he's worth whatever it is they're paying. But, 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 but why, why would you bring him off the bench, though, if you, if you, were, if you were Tony Pulis, right? So you, you've, got, you, you've got people who, I mean, John Walters is, I think, a limited footballer, but I think he really thrives in, in that system. You have other strikers there who Pulis bought and spent money on. He's got Kenwin Jones, who he no longer likes. He's got Cameron Jerome, who uh, he also spent money on, who you know, I think probably doesn't like so much anymore either. But... Well, but I mean, they're all a certain type of striker. Now you go say, for they're all they're all, the, they're all like for like, though, aren't they? I mean, Owen, Owen is just you know it, it's you know even Stoke need a plan B, don't they? So um, you know, much as Pulis has, has made a great you know, strength of 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 a, of a certain style, and he's he's a very good coach at 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 at, 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 at what he's done. But the fact is, yeah, you know, any, any team needs some variety, and Michael Owen is is offering that. And as Alison says, if he's fit, he's offering a. A potentially a very high-class variety. Might I suggest, though, that, Dicko, that Tony Pulis never saw the need to have a Michael Owen type in his team before? Yeah, but then, you know, Stoke, Stoke he clearly wants to progress. Maybe he's challenging himself as a coach as well to, to see how he can how he can make it work. I mean, I just, you know, I think maybe he's opening his eyes to, to new horizons. Right, we need to give a shout-out to uh, Ryan Shawcross, who, I don't know that he had his, I mean, he made an incredible clearance um, for Stoke. I don't know that he had his best game against City, but I've seen him play really, really well. I'm just wondering, why does his name never really get mentioned for England? It does. They sing it every time. At the no, no. I, okay. Outside of Stoke and Port Vale, perhaps. Well, it's, I think he should be there. I'm a big fan of his. Tony, you, you, you've got the uh, same barber as Ryan Shawcross. I don't have a barber, Gabe. <laughs> neither does he. No barbers for me. <laughs> The, I, I just think that England are actually quite well offered centre-back. I don't think they've got a perfect group, but they've got a good group. Gary Kyle, John Terry, Phil Jagielka. Uh, I, I don't think they're struggling for centre-backs. I also think that Ryan Shawcross probably falls into that group of players who, and, and this is unfair, but it's the way things in, in modern football, he needs to move to, it, to a club that plays more regular at a higher level in Europe. And, and, and once he does that, I think then he'll be considered. That's not fair, but I think that's the way it is. Dicko, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I thought Tony's probably captured it, captured it sort of right in terms of sort of why he's not selected. There's, there may be a certain degree of of, of snobbery about about where he's playing and just the fact that he hasn't been exposed to those tougher tests. I mean, I, you know, England were, I thought, um, Lescott and Jaggy Elk had their worst game together for um, for England last week and uh, actually had me thinking, blimey, um, I can see why John Terry, uh, why Hodgson picks Terry, um, sadly. But, um, you know, I'd... I, 
I, I don't think Shawcross has done enough, has shown enough to, 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 to leapfrog over them and Cahill. Let's move on to Loftus Road now, QPR and Chelsea. Now we're going to engage in that strange media phenomenon where we all say, oh, we want to just talk about football. We don't want to talk about the handshake. And then we're going to end up talking about the handshake because that's what we do. And actually, I want to take a step back. Um, Tico, is it important to talk about the handshake? Is it important to talk? Um, well, in, well, I, say, I think Dion Dublin, as you say, Dion, I think it was Dion Dublin last night, was it on, on um, uh, most of the day talking about, yeah, you say, don't want to sort of do it like the tabloids do. And, and then, you know, let's talk about... Um, more better things while talking about the handshake for for, for some considerable length of time is um, well I think it's it's it gets and I guess it takes the sort of classic pub argument you know people talk about newspapers reflect that to a to a degree and it gets people talking I sat in the court case um, for the entirety of it and um, so I sort of I feel quite strongly about it and I understand why Anton Ferdinand um, did what he did or didn't do what he didn't do. Um, I have full, full uh, say, understanding of that, having sort of sat next to the Ferdinand family for, for, for a painful week. Um, and I sort of think he, he made the decision on a point of principle. I mean, people sort of, some people are talking about the petulance of modern footballers and how it sort of reflects terribly on, on the game and, how, you know, it shows sort of foot, you know, football at its worst. Well, why? I mean, here was a guy who was sort of put in a very difficult position. You can argue about the handshake itself, whether that should ever take place. But in Ferdinand's case, he made the decision on a point of principle he's, and he's perfectly entitled to. I, I certainly support him. In, in in say in his actions or in what he didn't do on Saturday, I, I, I guess where I, I fall down with this a little bit is well, first of all, the whole issue of the handshake. I, I find it ridiculous when you've got managers and clubs saying they should just do get rid of it. Um, this was introduced by the Premier League. The Premier League isn't some weirdo star chamber sent down from the top of Mount Olympus. The, the Premier League is the 20 Premier League clubs and they tell Scudamore what to do. Scudamore doesn't have some weird agenda to go and try to get everybody to shake hands. He may be obsessive compulsive but not in that way. Um, so you know, if you as a club don't like it, get rid of it. It's there for a reason. It's there to, 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 to show off uh, or, or to send a certain message which – I think is actually a worthwhile message. Um, but I think my trouble with the Anton Ferdinand thing um, is is this, is he's a professional footballer. The handshake is part of the pregame ritual in the Premier League now. It's, it's part of the thing. Now, if you don't do it, you're not doing your job. Um, now, it's fine and there are situations where I think it's appropriate that somebody puts down their tools and doesn't do their jobs. Uh, you know, doesn't do the job because they feel strongly about something. Um, that's why we have we have strikes, and that's why going on strike isn't illegal, for example. But it feels to me that though, or it seems to me that when uh, a, a person goes on strike, whether it's a teacher or, or, or a cop or a minor or whatever, they face consequences, and then they kind of go into you know battle in from from an industrial uh, point of view or, or labor point of view. Here, he just doesn't shake his hand. And he goes on and plays his match just like that. He's, I, I, I mean, I'm, it almost seems like he doesn't really have a, a, a stake in this, that there's no downside to not shaking John Terry's hand. Am I way off base on this, Tony, since you're probably the, the most lefty union lover here? The, I just think it's 
it, it makes football supporters make moral decisions and judge players on moral grounds because what we're saying is that it, it's sort of okay in a way for Anton Ferdinand to do it because he's the perceived victim and it's not okay for Lewis Farah to do it because he's the perceived villain and without wanting to go into the right and wrongs of those positions and, and that's a debate for the, someone else to have because I've had it up to here with it. The, I just think it, it takes people into the, the realms of value judgments and that is my where I become uncomfortable with the whole pantomime. These are footballers, they're paid to play football, they're not paid according to the value of their handshake or otherwise. And I just think we ask people who may not like each other, who may have a pass with one another, who may have been in court with one another, to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. You wouldn't see Anton Ferdinand cross the street to shake hands with John Terry. So why would you ask him to do it before they play football? I just think it's an artificial construct. Well, and if the players are exposed... It's part, it's, it's part of this great entertainment um, sort of construct that the Premier League, Premier League football, top flight football has become. It's it's part. No, I, that's part of the ritual. He's not. He's not. He, they're not having a kickabout, uh, five aside in the park. Going back to going back to this issue, Allison. Um, we're spending a long time on the handshake. Do you have anything? <laughs> do you have anything you're, you're, you're dying to say? Or can we get into the game? No, I think Ferdinand has every right to shake or not not shake the hands of whoever he wants to, even um, when he's at work. I. It, that's not his job, is it? It. It's like. His job is playing football. I don't. I don't think the analogy quite works. It's not like he's saying I'm not going to. There's, there's going to be a little force field around John Terry, and I'm not going to do anything football-wise within five meters of him. He's not saying that. He's just saying, I just feel I'd be a hypocrite if I shook his hand, so I'm not going to do it. His manager said that's fine. Don't do it if you don't want to do it. It will fester and fester. We'll have handshake stories for the next ten years. That's great. That's great. We let's hope they both play till they're forty, and we can we can still be writing handshake stories. All right, my, 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 my Tottenham Hotspur supporting uh, producer, uh, Chris, is uh, making the gun to the head gesture. So <laughs> we're just going to quickly blow through the right. One, one little thing on everybody's favorite um, Spanish striker. Uh, do, is anything sinister in the fact that he appeared to disappear down the tunnel in, in a bit of a huff after his substitution? Or is it just Nat, Fernando being Fernando? I'd be worried if I was Di Matteo. You know, on one Would you be day, worried or would you be happy because no, maybe he I'd might not worried. want to play again? No, I'd be worried because at one minute, you know, Torres can't cope with the fact that he's not number one striker. Next minute, apparently he's having difficulty coping with the fact he is number one striker. It's just pathetic. <laughs> Tony, you got, to, you got to enjoy the great man up close. Um, the, were there any signs of this, of, of, of this guy's state of mind in his first, you know, first few years at Anfield when everything was going great? There was a substitution that was very famous at the time. Benitez took Torres off of Birmingham away. Uh, and there was mayhem afterwards because he'd taken Torres off after, I think, 54 minutes. And there was this, this idea, how could you replace Fernando Torres? And at the time, and, and if you remember, Steven Gerrard had a very visible facial reaction, which, which the camera just picked up on. And at the time, Benitez was slaughtered for it. Fernando Torres was abysmal that game as he had been in a number of games previously and the story revolved around Fernando whether it was right or wrong to take take him off and I think this has helped create this kind of thing within Torres he does he did from that position on he decided that he was kind of he was too good to be taken off and I thought that the action that you saw 
um, Saki was, was the natural extension of that. Fernando Torres has had people tell him he shouldn't be taken off. And that's the Spice's form, that's the Spice's fitness. He thinks he should always be on the pitch. He's too good to be taken off. Uh, final, final word on on, on QPR. Uh, they've spent money. I think they were a bit unlucky. I mean, Fabio and, uh, and Andy Johnson going down to some injuries in the first half in this game. Um, Dicko. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Are they going to stay up and might they finish top 10, as some suggest? I don't think they will finish top 10. I mean, I, I, you know, so far it looks like they've spent an awful lot of money to climb from, you know, sort of 17th to, to 14th. I mean, I, I'm still, I think Mark Hughes is still getting to grips with, um, with, the, with the squad. Um, so many, so many changes. There were changes in January. There were changes summer before that. And uh, I think it's going to take a while um, for him to make, for make, to make sense of it all. So I'd, yeah, I don't, I don't think they'll be in the bottom three, but I don't think they'll, um, you know, I, 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 but I'd love to see that wage bill at some stage because um, I think it will uh, not necessarily reflect their league position. Now, on to our debate this week, um, it's been, uh, well, it's, it's been nearly a week since the uh, findings of the Hillsborough Independent Panel. Um, if you If you follow their coverage, um, and, and that in the other media. It's obviously been, been an emotional time for a lot of people. Certainly our boss, Tony Evans, has, has weighed in heavily on this. Tony Barrett, of course, as well. In case people haven't figured out, you're from Liverpool. Um, you know, you, you've also spoken and written quite eloquently uh, about this. Moving forward on this, I, I want to throw out this sort of broader theme. Um, obviously, a, right, sorry, a wrong has been righted um, uh, thus far, and, and we've, we've uncovered some, or perhaps some might say had confirmation of some pretty shocking things in terms of police cover-up and uh, law enforcement cover-up over the years. Is something going to change going forward, or is it a case, Dicko, that the system actually works today in a way that it didn't work in 1989, and that because the system works, that's why we've been able to have the Hillsborough Independent Panel and a cover-up on this scale involving football fans could not happen again or, or would be very unlikely to happen again. Are you fairly confident of that or do you think we just need to always be vigilant? Well, in terms of the, the, the cover-up side, I think you know, always need to be vigilant. I mean, you know, it's, not, it's, it's sadly not um, unique, is it? Uh, miscarriages, miscarriages of justice um, happen. We, we, we know that and they, they still happen. Um, so, yeah, on, on that side of things, um, you know, clearly we need to be vigilant. I mean, 
whether it affects football again um, in this way, I think obviously is is very is is highly unlikely. Without wanting to sound remotely complacent, but clearly, you know, part of the tragedy of of the great tragedy of Hillsborough was that it took that awful awful day to to um, make the you know make the changes in in stadia. I mean, there's been some incredibly powerful stuff written in the last week. I mean, some of the best. Journalism I've ever read. Uh, I must say, I, mean, I feel sort of emotional even talking about it. I've read more pieces in the last week that have made me cry than, than I can ever imagine, um, than I can ever remember. And, um, you know, I think it made all of us sort of look back to those days, you know, even at a small club like Cambridge United, where I watched, um, you know, going, turning up at games in the 80s and fights left, right, and center and stones being thrown um, over your head. And, you know, it just, it was just, Sort of say even at Cambridge, nice sleepy Cambridge, it was it was sort of pell you know, just madness on on afternoons, um, and it just sort of say it's reflect made us all reflect on those days of just sort of what football was um, and, and how far it's how far it's travelled. And as I say that obviously they say that the, the terrible tragedy is that that, that that it took the death of of 96 people to make so many people sort of realize how how wrong the culture was um around football and and how then that affected how the police um so appallingly handled the crowd at hillsborough tony i've, well, I've spent the last few days like a lot of other people going through the findings of the, of the hillsborough independent panel that they're all available online and i'll urge anyone who's who's got the time or and the will to to take the time to, to go through them because there's some absolutely harrowing accounts. There's a, a document in which senior South Yorkshire policemen meet with their insurers and lawyers and they actually talk about putting the responsibility on uh, for opening the gate to the Leppens Lane, uh, Gate C, onto a junior officer, Mr. Uh, officer X as they called him. This, this was conspiracy and cover-up and the idea was that a junior officer would get into less trouble. He'd carry the can, but would get into less trouble than the senior officer. So it's these layers of cover-up and cock-up which absolutely disturb you. And for me, the reason why people have fought so hard for, for 23 years, is, as well as the anguish and the pain, is the feeling that no one's ever taken responsibility. There has never been a sense of accountability for Hillsborough. And for me, there's one man who, who symbolised that more than any other. It's, and that's Graham Mackerel, who was... Secretary Sheffield Wednesday on, on the day of the disaster, and he actually told the Taylor inquiry that he was responsible for safety. He was responsible for safety at Hillsborough on 15th of April 1989. Graham Mackerel now works for the League Managers Association, but he also advises uh, UEFA on venue management, i.e., stadia. This is this this is someone who, who resigned from West Ham United after they fielded an ineligible player. In a, in a League Cup game and he said it wasn't his decision but he had to take responsibility for the failing. He never saw fit to resign from Sheffield Wednesday for what went wrong at Hillsborough, a stadium he was in, in charge of safety for. And there's so many examples of, of people who failed in their duties at Hillsborough, failed terribly and people lost their lives who are now in positions of, of maybe even greater power and greater influence and that's why the, the need for accountability is so great. Well, Graham Mackle isn't here to defend himself, but um, he's welcome to get in touch if he wants to. I'll just remind everybody who it was who, uh, who was Graham Mackle's boss, um, uh, Dave Richards, of course. Sir Dave, as some people like to call him. Hey, I want to throw something out there. I want to get you guys on this. Tony, I'll come to you in a minute because you, you, I, I read what, what you wrote about, uh, about this issue, about the FA. Dicko, 
you've been closer to the FA um, than probably most of us over the years. I want to understand what happened when the FA issued that really callous or what read like a, a callous, lawyerly, horrible statement the other uh, the other week, and then David Bernstein had to come out and you know show a much more human expression of of, of, of sorrow and and uh, and regret for uh, for Hillsborough. Was that just a a screw up, or is it a case that the FA fear? legal action and so the lawyer said no you mustn't say anything that might suggest you know an omission of responsibility i i mean i can i haven't sort of been briefed at any length by by anyone there but i i, I can only think that it was it was it was well you said it a screw up i you know there 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 are good people at the fa who good sort of um, I, I don't necessarily like using the phrase, but football, football people, um, and and well, just just you know, sane, um, well-meaning individuals who who I think will probably look back with 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 a fair uh, degree of embarrassment uh, about how that was handled because they're, they're better than that. Um, like you say, to sort of have to do it sort of in in two bits and to sort of back up a um, as you say, like a sort of a statement that looked like it had been written by by lawyers. Um, um, you know, rather than people sort of sentient beings, um, under you know trying to empathise and, and sympathise with the situation was 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 just plain wrong. And Bernstein, you know, did his best to retrieve the situation, but I can understand why the families felt it was it was you know very badly handled. And they say I, I'm surprised because um, yeah, the FA get a lot <laughs> a lot well a lot wrong and a lot we disagree with and uh, a lot we we put holes in. But I, I, they normally handle a situation like this um, far better. Tony, obviously, you, you wrote a piece. Do, do, do you think the FA are, are, are vulnerable to, to to legal action uh, at this point because of events in 1989, or is there? I mean, is, that, is there some kind of statute of limitations on this, or, and is that why they, they reacted the way they did? It's funny you should ask that. that that's an issue I'm I'm going to be speaking to a solicitor about later today, and someone who's an expert in this field, because there is a feeling that it may well be out of time that the FA. Will, will for one of the better phrase get away with it. Uh, they, their involvement is now it's apparent to everyone. But it was the, the thing that irritated me most is their failings were apparent on the day of the disaster. Everyone knew then that the FA put an FA Cup semi final in the stadium that didn't have a, a valid safety certificate. There was no apology in the days afterwards, and that you have to wait until the day after uh, an independent panel report reveals everyone's failings. I think that said a lot about the FA and, and their attitude towards Hills. But Kelvin McKenzie made an apology before the FA. And I think I think that puts it into its, its proper perspective. If Kelvin McKenzie's beaten to the punch on an apology, you're going badly wrong somewhere. So I, I for me the apology counted for very, very little. It, it David Bainstein did at least contain the word sorry, it was an undeserved apology as he, as he put it. But I think what people want to see is a holding up the hands from the Football Association and an acceptance that their failings played a big part in people dying of the football match. You probably need to speak to a corporate manslaughter expert to know whether the FA as a body can be, the current management can be held responsible or whether you, how, I don't know how you progress that. Have you, when you've been investigating, Tony, have you found out who, if you go down the corporate manslaughter path, who you aim that at at the FA? This is something that Michael Mansfield's looking at the moment. I don't think he has the answers as yet. Uh, and if he hasn't, then I certainly haven't. He's, uh, I spoke to uh, 
day, Michael, after the after the press conference on Wednesday, and he basically said to me that everything was on the table. He said absolutely everyone who's failed in any way, they will be looked at and examined. But the legalities of it is still to be determined. I know the families have written to the Attorney General today. The first move is to try and get the original inquest verdicts quashed. Uh, and I think from that point on, you will see the, the relevant legal moves. But it's very, very difficult because, as has been said, it was a different regime, it was a different FA. Uh, and for this reason, I would like to see the likes of Graham Kelly, who was still around. I'd, I'd like to see him be made the council. I'd like to see him stand up and give his version of events and say exactly what what went wrong and why it went wrong. It, in one sense, I do have some sympathy with, with David Bernstein. This wasn't on his watch. But for the people who are around, who it was on there, watching it's up to them to take responsibility even more than it is up to David Bernstein. But where did it go? I mean, I just, I mean, on this point, Tony, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, what a, what is Michael Mansfield after now? I mean, is it, is it, I mean, is there a, a if there's legal action, is it for, for money to help um, the families? Is it for, um, you know, a, a degree of anger that therefore needs a certain um, retribution? Is it, because there's a fear that the people who were thoroughly incompetent, um, you know, that all those years ago may still be, you know, in positions of, of, of great responsibility and, and and should be forced out of those positions. I mean, or is it all three of those things? I, I think I think the the fact that the fines were so extreme, there was no one involved in in at any level of the campaign that expected the cover-up to be as extensive as it was and to involve so many people. The fact that the South Yorkshire ambulance were involved, I think that was one of the most shocking things. And that people are desperate for the county. They want to see the people who covered up what happened here as the door to account. I don't think anyone's in it for money, certainly not the people I've come across. The, I mean, just to put that in perspective, the, the families, when the inquest, when the legal uh, process was being gone through, 10, 12, 15 years ago and longer, they were paying all their own bills. Uh, the police were getting their bill, legal bills paid by the state. There's, I don't think there's ever been a financial element to this, but there is There is a phase for justice, and, and whether you want to put that down to vengeance, I wouldn't go that strong, but I can certainly understand why families feel like they want their day in court, that they want people to be, to be held responsible for what happened to Hills. I, I spoke to what that yesterday survivor and he said to me he wants the police officer who pushed them back into the pen when he was trying to escape he wants to see him in court and, and I think that's perfectly understandable because that I mean I mean, obviously the lad survived but had he died is that not a case of manslaughter I'm not a legal expert but there seems to be a lot of people out there who got a lot of things wrong who are, who are yet to, to answer for their failings but presumably the, inqu- the new inquests have to come first before you progress um, things such as manslaughter. Um, um, on the new inquest, you spoke initially, Gab, about moving forward. What I think would be would be great would be if, from the new inquest, we discovered that there was a lot of heroism among the people who died, which I, don't, I think has been lost. The only people I know who were at Hillsborough that day, the girl that I knew, she survived because a bloke lifted her above his head and so she could get out, and she's pretty sure he died doing it, or died soon after doing it. And I think if you're the family of that man who died, who did that, you want to know, in black and white, that he died. He died being a hero, not not a scumbag hooligan. I think when something like this happens, I think it's the um, duty of the survivors, the witnesses, and you know those who experience the aftermath from afar to 
hopefully learn as much as they can to make sure that stuff like this never happens again. Time now for some quick hits. Uh, Manchester United pummel Wigan, but the real story is the two new faces in Sir Alex's squad. Alexander Butner rampages down the flank and scores a gem of a goal. And Nick Powell also gets on the score sheet and has Sir Alex Ferguson comparing him to none other than Paul Scholes. Dicko, was Sir Alex right all along? Or are we all just getting a little bit carried away? Uh, I thought Butner looked um, powerful down the left. I mean, Everest needed a break, and Butner, you know, looks looks a great, um, potentially a very good replacement. Uh, Powell is a classy, looks like a classy little player, sort of coming um, just behind the striker. But it, none of this answers the big hole in the central midfield, which I still think is a big problem. Arsenal were written off by some in the summer, but they coolly slammed six past Southampton. And were it not for a brain fart from Szczesny, they would have kept yet another clean sheet. Alison, are the gunners for real? Well, thank you, first of all, for the phrase brain fart. It's lovely. Um, Well, it's interesting. I mean, Wenger seems to think that, or seems to be arguing that now they don't have the focal point of Van Persie, they're a better team for it because the goals will come from, from everywhere. And if that is true, that's a new mindset and they are prepared to start scoring freely and not be scared to shoot, then... Uh, they are the real deal, but it was it was against a team that looked um, sort of I don't know almost couldn't believe they were there. Um, so let's see if they can score from everywhere against um, teams that are more assured in the Premier League. Yeah, tough day for Messrs. Gorks and Pierce. Uh, Tony, as I'm sure you're aware, Liverpool have avoided their worst start in um, more than a century by earning a share of the spoils at Sunderland. Is this a real improvement? And also because he got slaughtered for it on television. Was that actually a dive from Luis Suarez, or was it more of a non-call? The I think on the improvement side of things, I think it's a, a telling indication of Liverpool's mediocrity that you now look at a one-one draw or something in which they probably should have won but didn't. As a sign of improvement, this was Liverpool of last season. Liverpool dominating games, not taking chances. I, I don't see as it pronounced improvement. I just see as it's part of the course. It's what they are, and it's where they are. On the dive, when I I was watching on television, and I my first instinct was dive. I I that was the first thing I shouted dive, and I texted a friend of mine and said that's a bad dive. I was absolutely adamant, and then they slowed it down at half time and showed fifty different angles, which suggested there may be actually two points of contact. Uh, it's whether it was enough to send them down. I don't know, but I just think that we're now in a, a situation where a player goes down in the box. He now gets booked or a penalty is given. There is no, there doesn't appear to be scope for referees to say, actually, it's impossible to say what happened there. He might even know what happened. We know he's gone down. We know there's an attempted challenge. I'm not convinced it was a penalty. I'm not convinced it was a dive. Let's wave play on and get on with the game. Harry Redknapp appeared to have a go at Andre Villas-Boas when he talked about BS and 70-page dossiers. But AVB shook it off and Spurs rolled to a 3-1 win at Reading. Dicko, you sat down with Harry... Was he really taking a pop at AVB? Uh, well, Harry didn't uh, name um, AVB when he talked about managers with um, uh, thinking they're young and clever and geniuses, just as he did, definitely did not mention Daniel Levy when he talked about never, ever wanting to work for a chairman who thinks he knows the best about transfers. Um, um, so obviously he did not mean to refer to either of those two gentlemen um, if their lawyers are watching or listening. Um, but no, I think um, I think AVB should be very uh, happy he's got Harry's job. He's left him with a, a decent team. He's um, 
his chairman has made some um, half decent signings for him. I, I, I think um, that he just needs to get on and not worry about playing um, the media games and um, get his team in shape. To be fair, Dicko, it's you and I in the muckraking uh, media who asked Harry those provocative questions and then took Harry's answers to AVP. I know. I, I did. I did. Um, uh, yes, I did wake with a start when I saw that on the back page this morning because I thought, say, Harry, Harry never even mentioned AVB. I don't know where people get this idea that when he talks about young, clever, clever dick managers, he could, who he could possibly refer, be referring to. Now you go rake some more muck. Uh, Dimitar Berbatov, uh, Allison's favorite player, scores two as Fulham beat West Brom, 3-0. Allison, uh, you on the Berba bandwagon yet? And could he be the signing of the summer? I think he's the signing of history, according to y'all, isn't he? Um, as far as the club's concerned. Well, it started very well. It started very well indeed. Yeah, George Bass, Rodney Marley. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it started very well, and uh, it was a joy to watch Berbatov, actually, because he does that whole strolling around thing, and you think, hmm. And then suddenly he, he he's class act, eye for goal, clinical penalty, actually worked quite hard, was uh, often found defending in important situations. So it was a beautiful home debut. He said he was happy. Yol nearly cried with joy at how well it had gone. The key, I suppose, is whether Berbatov can uh, cope with the fact that Fulham away from the cottage are a different um, beast and that, that, that might that might ruin the, the fairy tale, I think. Aston Villa get their first win of the season as they beat Swansea 2-0 to bring them crashing back to earth. Two newcomers steal the show as Matthew Loughton nails a screamer and Christian Bentigay comes out looking like the kind of Belgian forward Romelu Lukaku was supposed to be. All well now for Paul Lambert, Tony? I'm not sure because if you look at the squads, great need to say if there's not a great deal there. And a lot of people point fingers at Alec McLeish and, and Martin O'Neill and other Villa managers for that, but... I just wondered about Randy Lane as well and all this and, and whether he's invested as he should done should have done uh, Aston Villa and now they're not even competing for Europe and I don't think there's any way they'll do that this season. Again, I look at the squad and I can see them I can see them battling against relegation. I just don't think you've got the, the necessary quality to go any higher. Gab, um, I'm guessing you don't want to talk about Mourinho every week, but um, Real are looking um, weak and making headlines for the wrong reasons. Explain. Uh, no, in fact, Alison, I love talking about Mourinho every week. In fact, I could go Mourinho 24-7. Uh, no, I, I thought it was quite surprising. Um, they uh, lost at the weekend again to Seville. It's their worst start in 10 years. They're now eight points behind Barcelona, which means that even if they win all the Clásicos, uh, they no longer hold their fate in their hands. And what was remarkable was Mourinho came out and said, right now I don't have a team. We are disjointed. And there are two, three, two or three players here who aren't pulling their weight and they're thinking about other things. I, I just can't imagine it would ever be good for a manager to say something like that because all it means is the media will now speculate on who those two or three players are, um, which surely can't be good. Then again, he's a special one and, and I'm not. And, and maybe there is a logic. Maybe once again, this is the kind of, uh, of thing only he can pull off and maybe he is pushing the right buttons with his team. I don't know. That's all we've got time for this week. It's been fun, and it's been real. Come find us on Twitter to share your thoughts or email gamepodcast at thetimes.co.uk. You can also, of course, go to thetimes.co.uk. You'll find your news, your gossip, your analysis, including my excellent column. I don't know, I doubt any of you three have read it today, but it takes you all the way to 
the Armenian uh, enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. There you go. Okay, judging from your reaction, nobody's bothered to read it. So, whatever. Till next week. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.